As we are moving back into Judges, I just want to point out a couple of things uh, just to reorient us. The, the book uh, begins with a double introduction that talks about um, the nation's military failure and their religious failure. Um, and then there's this section in the middle that has all of the judges' stories. And then it ends with a parallel double conclusion that ends with their religious failure and their military problems. So it, it goes military, religious, judges, religious, military. The book is, the book is beautifully designed. Um, and um, it, it just gets worse and worse throughout the whole book. Um, we covered the first um, four judges and as we looked at those first four judges, uh, three of them in particular and one minor judge that we paid attention to, they're actually pretty good. The, the evaluation of them is, is uh, fairly positive, um, although we don't get a lot of information to work with. Uh, we are moving into a section here with Gideon, who is, um, he's okay, I'm going to try to be honest with Gideon and, and, and give you both sides. Uh, he, Gideon's not a total failure, um, but he begins this path of, as we expand and we get a whole lot more about what, what's going on with Gideon, we recognize there's a lot of conflicts and, and there's some pretty significant problems with Gideon. We're going to move on to Jephthah and Samson, who are the worst. They, they just keep getting worse. And we'll end the book with this thing that in the Bible Project chart, it says down there, very disturbing. We're starting this downward cycle from, from some judges who were okay, who kind of set the pattern. Gideon is going to make this turn, and, and then we're going to move towards the end of the book, which is just utterly disturbing as you read it. You, you just look at it and you go, why is that in the, in the Bible? And, and I want to do something here for a moment just to raise the question, why is Judges in the Bible? <laughs> why do we have this book? It is a horrible book. Um, the characters are not good role models, to say the very least. Um, what was God thinking uh, by putting this book that just degenerates um, in, in, in Scripture? Um, and I heard a term uh, on a podcast this past week. I was listening, and I'm not going to talk about the whole podcast, but the term that was used was terminal idolatry. And I thought, that's the problem. That, that's our problem. We have terminal idolatry. Um, there are all kinds of things that attract us to um, give our lives to that are not God. Um, and and this, this is a terminal condition. It leads only to death, death in our lives as we give our lives to, to idols. It just brings death, destruction, and chaos. Um, spiritual death, ultimately, if, if there's not a remedy for it. Um, and so we have, this, we have this problem of not worshiping God, um, chasing other things that we think are going to make us happy. The problem is the treatment that is necessary is not anything we would have dreamed up. And so I think partly what God does is he, he says, you've got this terminal idolatry problem, and I'm going to go ahead and allow you to have some treatments but they're not going to work. And so in the Old Testament, there's a series of, of treatments that we experiment with, but at the end of them, absolutely none of them work. Here's what I think it looks like. We're infected with this terminal idolatry in the garden uh, where, where Adam and Eve choose to go their own way, and rather than 
graciously receiving the provisions of God, they choose to take control of their lives by, by eating from the, the tree that they were told not to eat because they basically say, we know better than God. So we're going to go our own way. And so God begins with a couple of things, um, a number of them, I've got six here, uh, of saying, let's see if this will work. The first one, banishment from the garden, okay? <laughs> Everything was paradise for you. You made the wrong choice. I'm going to kick you out of the garden. Let's see if that helps. It doesn't. Their, their selfishness continues, and things actually just get worse and worse and worse. So, so punishment, go to your room, um, that doesn't work. Things eventually got so bad that every inclination of man's thoughts were only evil all the time. That's how Genesis 6 describes it. And God just says, I've had enough. And so he sends a flood to cleanse the world, and he starts all over with Noah. He gives Noah the exact same commands that he gave Adam. Um, so he, he cleanses and starts all over. They get off the ark, and it starts again. Um, that, that didn't work. Kicking them out didn't work. Starting all over, a, a new fresh start, that didn't work. God decides, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different. I'm going to narrow the playing field, and I'm going to start a new bloodline with Abraham. He, he chooses the Jews. Well, they're no better. <laughs> they're, they've got a problem on every turn. There's all kinds of ups and downs and unfaithfulnesses in, in their life and in their, their, their heritage, their lineage. And so God says, well, maybe they need, maybe, maybe this will work. Maybe this treatment, let me give them a set of rules. And so with Moses, he gives them a law, and he says, here's a code to live by. And all that does is highlight um, all that they can't live up to. They have a set of laws, but they, they fail to, to make it. Then you get to this book of Judges, and it's, it's almost as if God says, well, I'll send a bunch of warriors. Let's see if, if none of all these things are saving them from them, their idolatry. How about if I send a bunch of warriors, heroes who will deliver them from the oppression? Well, that doesn't work. This is the most degenerate book in the entire set. So at the end of the warriors, after the judges, they start to get some kings, these dynastic rulers who have authority in the nation, and, and none of them do a good job either. So God sends a bunch of prophets. Um, these intense covenant preachers, but no one responds to them. There's Every now and then, there's minor revivals, but they don't last very long. It, it's as if God says, try all of this. If you don't want the real treatment, try all of this and see if all of this works. And none of it does. Because the only, the only treatment for our, our terminal idolatry is Christ. But, but if... If God would have said, I, I suspect, if he would have said from the very beginning, um, I'm going to send my son, he's going to die in your place. We would have said, is there some, how about something else? Let's try. And God just says, okay, go try it all. <laughs> try a fresh start. Try uh, living up to the laws. Try heroes and, and warriors and chieftains. Try some kings. Tr try all that. And it, none of it works. <laughs> and, and Judges is just one of those steps along the way in the Old Testament that is saying you're going to need a treatment for your terminal idolatry that you never would have come up with. You never would have come up with the idea that God is going to send his son and his son is going to die in your place so that your unrighteousness can be transferred to his account and his perfect life, 
his righteousness will be transferred to your account and he will then pay for your sins. That's the final treatment. That's the only treatment. It's the 100% cure, but it's nothing we would have come up with. We would have come up with all these other things. God says, give it a try. He's not surprised by it. It's almost as if he's teaching us that none of all of this is going to work. So I think that's why Judges is in the Bible. Judges is one of these steps along the way to say, hey, if you think heroes are going to work, you're wrong. And by the way, I, I want to encourage you in, in our day and age, if you think heroes, if you think somebody's going to step forward to take control to solve the problems, um, you're mistaken. There is going to be somebody who's going to step forward and deceive a lot of people. Um, there's going to be an antichrist, and he's, he's going to promise peace and peace. But it's going to be a deception until, as the song we sang, until Christ comes back. And when he does come back, he will really be the solution. He's the solution to our terminal idolatry, and he's the solution to the corruption of the entire world. A lot of other things you can look to. Maybe we could get a law passed. Maybe we could get a better lineage that we're following. Maybe we could get some better preaching on Sunday mornings. Maybe none of that works. It's all focused on what Christ is going to accomplish for us. Now, in, in the book of Judges, we have seen there's this, um, there's this cycle that we go through in the book where the people sin, there's an oppression, there's kind of a, a repentance. It's a, they at least cry out to the Lord, and God will send a deliverer, there'll be peace, and then they'll go through that cycle again. And as I noted, it, the, the cycle gets worse and worse. The, the deliverers get worse. Their sinfulness gets worse. And, and it's as if the, the nation is just spinning out of control. But this is the cycle that has happened already with Othniel and with Ehud and with Shamgar and with Barak and, and Deborah. It's going to happen again uh, with Gideon and with Jephthah and with Samson. This cycle is going to continue where there's going to be uh, the exposure of a, of a sin, of idolatry. God's going to bring a nation to oppress them. The people will cry out. A deliverer will come. The deliverer will bring peace for a short period of time, and then it just starts again. The structure of the book is, is really interestingly set forth. Um, there are 12 judges, um, and these judges are um, ruling in different areas of the country, and this is not chronological. They're picking different ones to, to, to arrange all of this literarily, but we get 12 judges as kind of this symbolic representation of the entire nation. This is a picture of what's going on in the entire nation. Um, we get six major judges that we talk about, and then there's one of the judges, Gideon, who, who we are talking about, who has a son who's not a judge, but there's a pretty big story about him because he kind of moves from judge to setting himself up as a king. But we have six major judges, Othniel, Ehud, uh, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. They're the six major stories that take place. Now, there's some smaller folks that we mostly haven't heard of, Shamgar, Tola, Jael, um, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. Um, they're minor judges, and th their function is really, for the most part, to get us up to 12. But we have six that we're going to focus on. Arriving here in, in the Gideon cycle, we've kind of made it to a pivot, and, and things are changing in some significant ways as we get to Gideon. So let me, let me talk to you about that. Uh, Kenneth Way uh, puts it this way. The Gideon cycle, that's chapter 6 through 8, 
is the fourth story in the sequence of seven stories, if you include uh, Abimelech, um, I would say six stories, that compose the body of Judges. But the story is set apart from the other six because it is positioned alone in the center and serves as a pivot for the entire book. There are a number of things that are going on here, but Gideon really is the pivot of things are going to start to go downward. Um, It's the pivot because we're going to get more expanded stories. These stories uh, of um, of Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, they're much longer, and we're getting much more full characters. So everything is, is expanding as we move into this. Um, Greg Wong says this too. If you take it from God's perspective, one can sense the Lord's increasing frustration with the people's repeated waywardness, something that will become even more apparent at the beginning of the Jephthah narrative. Boy, think, things are turning bad here. Um, with, with Gideon, as you're going to see, the people cry out, and God doesn't immediately send a deliverer. He sends a prophet first. God's, God's really pretty frustrated with these guys. Um, Abimelech's going to uh, set himself up as a, as a warrior. God doesn't send Jephthah. The people go get Jephthah because he's kind of a local thug. Um, God doesn't send him. And then Samson, God sets him apart from his mother's womb but he doesn't keep a vow in his entire life. Things are really moving in a bad direction. You, you can sense the Lord's frustration. We'll, we'll see that. Um, but we're going to focus a little bit here on, on Gideon, who, who I'm going to present as a man with weak faith and a strong God. I'm not going to say he doesn't have faith. I want to try to be as fair as I possibly can with Gideon. Um, Gideon has weak faith. He does have faith. He's not an unbeliever. Um, he's, he's certainly not a Jephthah who doesn't even understand what the Lord is like. And he's certainly not like Samson who could care less what the Lord is like. Um, he's engaged, but, but his faith is really very weak. Um, just so you know, I'm not on an island here. Kenneth Way says, the passage certainly introduces Gideon as God's designated deliverer, but it does not put Gideon on a pedestal as a role model to follow. Um, we tend to think if somebody's in the Bible, they're, they're a role model. It's just not true most of the time. The only role model is Jesus Christ. Everybody else is going to fall short. But Judges is presenting these guys with, their, with their, their failures and their inadequacies, and it's highlighting them, particularly uh, at this point in the book. Michelle Knight, she says this, Gideon embodies the downward trajectory predicted by Yahweh's messenger. A movement from destroying the strongholds of the Canaanites under our first judges to embracing its ensnaring influence. Um, Gideon's actually going to start fairly good. He, he's going to have some questions, but he's going to obey. But the last thing we, we find out about Gideon is that he's made an idol himself, and his family is, is worshiping around the idol. Uh, Dr. Knight goes on to say, In Gideon, readers initially observe an Israelite convinced of his own weakness, unsure of Yahweh's strength, and consequently afraid to respond unconditionally. But later, a leader whose lack of appreciation and response to Yahweh's repeated deliverance leaves him vulnerable to misunderstanding his own calling and susceptible to the religious influence of Baalism. He's, he's got weak faith, he struggles, God's still going to use him, which is, gosh, one of the huge points in the book of, of Judges. Yes, these people are frail and fickle, and these people are less than excellent role models, but God in his grace continues to use them. Um, 
I was actually texting with Michelle um, earlier uh, this week, and um, I told her I needed a different picture of her. That she's just too bright and smiley in this picture, because um, it, it's such a negative quote. And just for her to go, oh yes, he's a terrible guy, and she's smiling there. I said, send me, can you send me a picture of you scowling? Um, she said no. But I told her I was I was moving into Gideon, and uh, wh- what she texted me was this. Gideon, um, he's so completely terrible, but terrifyingly relatable. So we're not here to judge Gideon, okay? We're not here to, to, to be harsh on Gideon and set ourselves up and go, well, we're so much better. In fact, I want to talk about Gideon and Ken Wilson. Just... You put your name in there if you'd like, or you can throw me and Gideon under the bus and just feel better about yourself. That's fine. Um, but as you look at the career of Gideon, clear ups and downs in faith and obedience. There are sometimes he steps forward and he does what he's supposed to do, and then there are sometimes that his faith is really weak, and sometimes um, he, he, he essentially is saying, I'm not going to obey. Clear ups and downs, just like me just like me. Um, My faith is strong sometimes. My faith is weak sometimes. (laughs) Um, I'm not as quick to obey as I wish I were. Uh, Years ago, I heard someone define maturity as shortening the distance between when you know what you're supposed to do and you actually do it. I'm not so sure that that's not something we should strive for. Maturity is someone who knows what they're supposed to do and they do it soon. Um, not always true for me. Um, a lack of usable Bible knowledge. This is true for Gideon. He, he knows some of the stories, but he's not, he's not able to apply them and, and look at them and say, wow, it worked like that there. I could trust God to do it this way. He just knows the stories. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, how, how usable our Bible knowledge is. <laughs> um, are we just super smart, educated sinners? Or are we actually using what we've learned to grow in Christ-likeness? Um, is it really having an impact on how well we love? Um, how, how well we worship? How, how consistently we serve? Does, does our Bible knowledge actually impact us? Gideon knows some of the stories, but they're not having an impact on what he believes. Gideon has a good start and a poor finish. Um, this has been a struggle for me, by the way, my entire life. I, I tend to start well, um, preaching through Romans, 68 messages, starting well. And by the time I get to the end, I'm just like, oh, I just want to finish. You're probably feeling the same thing too. But, but I've really tried to purpose myself to finish well. Um, Gideon doesn't finish well. Gideon, Gideon starts fairly well. He tears down his father's shrine. Um, he defeats the Midianites. But at the end, um, it, it all goes to his head. And, and rather than offering the spoils to the Lord, he takes some of it and fashions it into something that becomes an idol and a snare for he and his family. He starts well, but he doesn't finish well. Can anybody identify? 
in, in the long term or maybe even in the short term. Um, Gideon makes affirmation with words, but he's hesitant in his application. He says some right things, but then when it comes time to actually just obey, <laughs> he's really hesitant. Um, Gideon seeks assurance for what God has already promised. God's already said some things. He's, he's going to be with him. He's going to win the battle. God tells him that really clearly. And, and Gideon says, are you really going to be with me? Are we going to win? Dude, he already said that. How many of the things that we struggle with are things that, that I think we need to look at ourselves and say, dude, God's already said that. Um, he seeks assurance of victory before he obeys. Why don't you just obey? Because you know what? God doesn't always promise you the victory. Sometimes he tells you, obey me, and you're going to get slaughtered. That, that happens sometime in the Old Testament. Why don't we just obey rather than going, okay, I'll do this, but only if it's going to work. <laughs> I'm talking way more about Ken Wilson than Gideon. Taking too much credit for God's work. There's a, there's a point in the story, it's a, it's a few weeks away, there's a point in the story um, where Gideon says, let's go get the Midianites. And as you're going, scream, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. <laughs> really? Dude? He, he, just, he just shrunk your army so that he was the only one who's going to get the credit. And you're saying the sword of the Lord and Gideon too. Um, allowing victory, success, growth to turn into pride. Let me think about this in your life. Is there an area of growth for you um, that, that turns into pride in your marriage, in your relationships, where, where you, you feel some sense of legitimate growth? I'm not, I'm not calling into question your growth. There's, there's some areas in my marriage where I feel like I've grown and I've I've learned to, to do some things better. Um, I truly have grown. And then there are the times that there's conflict between Dawn and I, and I'm like, well, I'm so much better than I used to be. Come on. Give me a break. Anybody been there? I've grown. <laughs> I've had some successes. So, so now you should just be delighted that you've got somebody like me. Oh, my gosh. Letting God's blessing turn into a snare for idolatry. Um, God blesses Gideon with a, this huge victory. We'll get into all the details. He, he blesses him with this huge victory. And it's, it's actually the very victory that becomes the thing that ensnares him. Um. Boy, there's a lot going on with Gideon. And um, as Michelle said, he's so stinking terrible, but terrifyingly relatable. And I'm going to give you an honest perspective on Gideon. There's some good things. He finally gets it after he struggles from time to time. I mean, the dude doesn't even know when the Lord's standing in front of him. He, 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 he doesn't even know it. Um, 
but he does some good things along the way. Um, I'm going to be honest about all of that, but but I, I don't want us to get into any pattern where we are going, oh, wow, Ken has showed us that he shouldn't be evaluated as a strict hero role model. I've learned something good. I won't be so positive about Gideon anymore. That's, that's not the place. The place to go here is not the focus on stinking terrible, but the focus on terrifyingly relatable. That's where I want you to focus. So as we move into this Gideon story, yes, he's got weak faith in a strong God. And and that's what we're like so often. God wants to use us to do some big things, but we hesitate. Um, We put conditions on it. Um, We we, we take credit for things along the way. Like I said, Gideon, Gideon is a real change in the trajectory of how things are moving. Uh, again, Michelle says this, uh, the, the simplicity of the portrayal of deliverers in the first three military conflicts, Othniel, Ehud, and Barak and Deborah, uh, in those first three military conflicts stands in sharp relief from that of Gideon, for whom the narrator breaks decidedly from the earlier pattern of non-evaluative presentation. We get quick stories. Here's what happened. Um, Barack and Deborah is a little bit longer because there's so many characters, but you don't get a lot of what's going on inside their heads. You, don't, you just don't get that. You don't get much dialogue going on. Um, she says, in the form of narration, chapter 6 and 7, Record Gideon's intention. Look at the internal stuff going on that you don't get in the other characters. You get his intention, his mental perceptions, his emotions, and his religious response. Through extensive dialogue, the text reveals Gideon's interpretation of Yahweh's recent action or his lack of interpretation. He, he knows that God's done some things, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't apply it well in Israel's history. A perspective opposite to that of the prophet's previous song. We've just come off this song of, in chapter 5. We spent three weeks looking at it where God gets the credit, he's exalted as the true hero of every story. That's how I left uh, Judges 5. Yahweh is the true hero of every story. He uses some different people, if you'll remember. Those who wouldn't participate are condemned. Those who do participate, they're exalted and they're blessed. But Yahweh is the true hero of every story. And following right on the heels of that, you're going to get Gideon. Who doesn't seem to get that? Um, the, the whole story is really arranged in an interesting way. Um, you get the problem at the beginning, which is an external problem, the Midianite oppression. It's going to be really clear. The Midianites are harshing on the Israelites. Then we're going to get these two altars. One he tears down, one he builds up. The middle story is Gideon's personal faith struggle over the battle with the Midianites. And then there ends up being two battles. One where they destroy them in the camp, and then another battle where they're chasing them across the river. And then you end with a problem again that's now not external to Midianites. It's internal, Gideon's pride and his own idolatry. And, and interestingly, they, they, they begin in the end in the same city. That's not Oprah Winfrey. That's um, Ophrah. It's a place. We don't even know where it is. All we know is it means dusty. It's, it's, it's a dusty place. Um, but it begins and ends in the same place. And it begins and ends with a problem. The problem is external, but after the victory, the problem then becomes internal. It's a really fascinating thing. 
Lawson Younger says this, Judges 6, 1 through 8, 32, recounts the first time that Israel's appeal to Yahweh is met with a stern rebuke rather than immediate assistance, and thus signals the beginning of a sharp declivity in the cycles. Things are going to turn down. Up to this point, with Othniel, with Ehud, with Barak, the, the people are, um, are under the hand of some foreign force. They cry out, and the Lord sends a deliverer. The Lord sends Othniel. The Lord sends Ehud. The Lord sends Barak and Deborah. This one's different. <laughs> they cry out, and Gideon's going to be to deliver, but what he does is he sends a prophet initially. He, he's going to send somebody to get their perspective in line. Um, again, I, I, I need you to understand, I'm not on an island in how I'm viewing this. Uh, Danny Hayes, and his article on, on Gideon is out there. He says this, In many sermons and Bible study lessons, Gideon is often portrayed as a valiant and brave warrior, a true model for us. Yet a close reading of this story suggests he is perhaps more complex than that. And like many of the other judges, he has serious flaws in his character. Um, he does. And so we're going to be honest about that. We're going to be honest about how it reflects on us. Um, but we also need to be honest to say, but God still uses him. God still graciously uses him. So, so the conclusion at the end of this is not, well, Gideon had problems and I got problems just like him, so I'm going to sit on the sideline. No, the reality is Gideon had problems. I've got problems. Don't sit on the sideline because God can use you. Um, boy, I love Del Ralph Davis when he says this. As I said previously, no one could ever have intended, invented a God like this. It would be too much for guilty, sane folks to hope for a God who bridles his judgment to hold us in his grace. That's, that's good, isn't it? We, we could never have invented a God like this. The gods that we come up with are the gods who, um, who are either just completely grace and let us get away with everything, or they're completely uh, all just angry and judging, or maybe they grade on a curve. I'm doing a little bit better than, than this person. But the God that we couldn't have invented is a God who is so full of grace that, that he bridles his judgment. He's patient with people. Good grief, he's going to be patient with Gideon. He holds them in his grace because he wants to accomplish his purpose. The Israelites need to be released from the oppression of the Midianites. And Gideon seems to be the guy he's chosen. Not because he's so great, it's because God's going to get the credit for this anyways. So I've got a few minutes to get into a little bit of this. The oppression of the Midianites. And here's the, the lesson I'll start with. The perpetual idolatry of God's people leads to relentless discipline from God's hand. This is now the fifth time we're reading about their idolatry. And you'll notice God gives the Israelites into the hand of the Midianites. God is disciplining them. Perpetual idolatry, God's not going to let us get away with it. If you continue to live with anything other than your passion for God as the controlling influence in your life, 
Idolatry has nothing to do with whether you have trinkets that you bow down before. Idolatry has everything to do with who's central in your life and what controls the decisions you make. Listen to this first introductory thing. (laughs) The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. We've seen this before. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They prostituted themselves to the Baals and the Asteros. We're going to see that later in the story. But now we just get this summary. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And for seven years, now they're in the hands of the Midianites. But look how intense this is. Look how severe their oppression is. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, in the caves, in the strongholds. They had to leave their cities and their villages. They're living up in the caves. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, they come out of the caves and in the field in front of it. Whenever they planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined all the crops all the way to Gaza and didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. Their crops, their sheep, their cattle, their whole economic system, the supply chain was disrupted. Because <laughs> they're up in the caves, they come out of the caves, they plant, and all these marauding Bedouin tribes, they're, the, the, they're, they're these mobile tribes that live in, in tents. They're moving into the country. They camped on the land, ruined the crops all the way from Gaza, didn't spare a living thing in Israel, neither sheep or cattle or donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. It's getting bad. This is the worst description of the oppression. It is getting worse and worse and worse. Um. Maybe it's, it's time to pay attention to what's going on in our lives. And I understand we have really comfortable lives. I've been in another country recently and, um, and, and just want to tell you, living in America, even America today, and you may be frustrated with America today, living in America is the best place in the world you could live. And I'm not campaigning for patriotism. I'm just saying get over it. Um, but maybe there's other things going on in your life that are, are evidence of the idolatry, the, the conflict and relationship stresses that are, that are evidence of, of what you're really prioritizing in your life. Um, I'm going to jump right to the end. Oh, I'm skipping about 70 slides. The Lord graciously guides us to grow and be used in his grand story of redemption. He does that through discipline. He does that through all kinds of stuff. And we're going to see in this story of Gideon for a number of weeks how God um, is so full of grace. Um, he guides us. He, he, he allows us to grow so that we can be used in his grand story of redemption. So just a couple of things to think of. Remember, the Lord is obedient of our obe- Lord is worthy of our obedient faith. I think that's the, the opposite of what you see in Gideon. Um, Gideon has hesitant f- obedience, and he has questioning faith. But the Lord, who, who just orchestrates everything in the story so that he gets the credit, he's worthy of obedient faith. 
And perpetual idolatry leads to relentless discipline. God's grace isn't going to leave you alone. He may still use you, uh, but he's not going to leave you alone. So the challenge I have, and this is looking forward into the Gideon story, obey the Lord first time every time. That's not what Gideon does. But obey the Lord first time every time. When he tells you to do something, do it. When he tells you to calm down, do it. When he tells you to forgive, do it. When he tells you to serve, do it. When he tells you to get over it, do it. When he tells you to step into something, step into it. Obey the Lord first time every time. 